This passage before us, beginning at verse 12, seems to be a bit uh, inter- um, uh, <laughs> complex because it doesn't flow like uh, a, just one nice sentence in sequence to the next. Let me illustrate the point here because, guys, you've got to step back and get yourself a panoramic view of, this, of these verses from 12 to 18. I told you this, but let me try to point it out again. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, the next verse, which is our subject for tonight, 13 and 14, is in parenthesis, and it goes all the way through the end of 17. Now, look at verse 1, and now compare it to verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so. My point is, ladies and gentlemen, Paul starts his argument in verse 12. Therefore, just as. But the even so doesn't come until verse 18. What you have in this section is Paul trying to communicate one major issue, and that major issue is the comparison between Adam and Christ. But as he begins this argument, he starts it, okay, just as, he's about to compare him with Jesus, and he'll do that more so in verse 18, because that's where you find the completion of the just as. Um, Are you with me? I mean, um, he starts by saying, just as through Adam or one man's sin entered. And then he's, he's going to say, now, in comparison to that, uh, what Jesus, the one man, did is very similar to what the one... He's going to do that, eventually. <laughs> but he gets caught up with trying to explain some things that he realizes that his audience doesn't necessarily understand. And so, before completing his thought, he jumped, that's what you get in this parenthesis. In the parenthesis, what Paul is trying to do is explain some of the things that he's already said in verse 12, but he can't go on to complete his comparison until he's explained those things. So you have four, five, uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. You've got five verses that are doing nothing but parenthetically addressing, and we're going to find a parenthesis within a parenthesis here in a minute. I mean, well, next week. But what you find in verse 13 is Paul's, the, the purpose of verse 13 is another way of proving what he has just said, that death spread to all men because all sinned. And that's what he's, what he's going to do now is give you further evidence that that is true in verse 13. But it really doesn't contribute to his major goal of this comparison between Adam and Christ. But he's got to explain some things before he can complete the comparison clearly, at least in his mind. Did you get that? So verse 13 is giving you a proof that because one because sin entered through one man, death has spread to all men. That's his purpose here. In verse 13 and 14, by the way. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. 
Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And ladies and gentlemen, there's his theme in that last clause of verse 14. Adam is a type of him who was to come. And he's going to work out that comparison more fully later. But he has some things to explain first. And so verse 13 and 14, he is endeavoring to prove in a different way that death has spread to all men um, on the account of one man's sin. All right? I hope you got that. Because, guys, in the mind of the Apostle Paul, he understood that for a Jew, a, a, a Jew found it very difficult to think of sin apart from the law. You get that? A Jew, listening to what Paul is saying, finds it very difficult to, to think of any sin apart from law. And so, you notice he's referring to a period, a period of time. What is that period? From Adam to Moses. So you see what Paul is doing. I know what you're thinking, you Jews in my audience. Because law never entered until Sinai in your minds, what about all those people who lived between Adam and Moses? What happened to them? Because there was no law. And a Jew had a very difficult time of thinking about sin where there was no law. And he has a rightful reason to think that. If you'll flip back one chapter with me, look at chapter 4, verse 15. Because the law brings about wrath. Here it is. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. So in the mind of the Jew, with the law didn't exist, there could be no transgression. And the period in which the law did not exist in the mind of the Jew is from Adam to Moses. So what do you have to say about that, Mr. Paul? Guys, in a, in a very real sense, the law brings sin into being. Let, let, me, let me try to illustrate Let's imagine that you and I live out in the country and the, and the city is moving towards us and we've been driving down a two-lane road in the, out in the country for years, for years. The traffic's picking up out there because people are moving out there and, and we've just been breezing down this two-lane road for years and uh, through this intersection, this intersection, the next intersection because, it, you know, that's, that, that's just the way the road... But all of a sudden, the county commission decides that there's a stop sign, there's, there's a four-way stop needed at one of those intersections. And so you get up the next morning not knowing what the county commission has decided and you're headed down the street and there's a four-way stop that has never been there before. And if you run those, those, that four-way stop, you will be fined. Even though you've been riding down that road for years and years and years and you've never had to stop before. But law has brought transgression into being. There's a sense in which the creation of law brought sin into being. Now, um, but these people between Adam and Moses were dying. 
They were dying long before Sinai. And so how could that be, says the astute Jew? How could that be if death is the penal, is the penal action of violation of law? If death is the, the result of sin, and sin comes from a violation of a law, and there is no law, do you get that? I mean, do you see what's, what's going on in the mind of his reader, his, his audience? And so Paul has to address the people in that period. And by so doing, he gives another proof that sin has spread to all men. And he does it in a, in a pretty genius kind of way. Um, what he says is, because the whole human race sinned when Adam sinned, that explains why they died. Now, what Paul is doing is reasoning backwards. He starts with death. Okay, we know this. All those people between Adam and Moses died, didn't they? Yeah. And uh, you're saying that there was no sin because there was no law. Then the only other possible explanation is this. That they all sinned in Adam. So what he is doing is proving the point, death spread to all men because all sinned, and he does it this way. He says, well, I'll give you a proof. You say that there's no um, law, thus no sin, but all these people died. So if they didn't violate the law, why did they die? Well, they died because they sinned in Adam's sin. Um, so he has proved his point in a different roundabout kind of way. Keep reading with me. For until the law, sin was in the world. So, you know, do, you, do you get it? I mean, um, long before the law, long before Sinai, oh yes, sin was in the world. Um, and it came... Because you are identified with your federal head, Adam. And then he goes on to say, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Now, guys, that word imputed is the most difficult word in this whole paragraph for me. Because it is a very technical term that Paul is using very non-technically. I, 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 uh, the only way that I can, exp I, I can understand what he is saying, but sin is not imputed, is that he is using it not in the way that we normally use it. Um, that this does not mean, this, this half of the verse does not mean that there was no sin because there was no law. Let me give you a little evidence. Um, one of the reasons that we know there was sin is because all those people died. Another way we know that there was sin is giant cataclysms like the flood. Sodom and Gomorrah. God was indeed holding men accountable for sin, even though Sinai had not yet happened. Uh, oh yes, there was sin in the world long before the law, and judgment associated with that sin. But with the entrance 
of the law, sin is defined as sin. Um, it becomes a matter of public record at Sinai. That's the only thing that, that Sinai did. The, um, the offense became a matter of official violation with the creation of the law. But God was indeed still holding men accountable for their sin. You see it in the flood. You see it in Sodom and Gomorrah. You see it in the fact that all of those still died. Now, uh, in verse 14, these two are pretty much tied together. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Now, death reigned over all men. They're all being held responsible for sin, even though they didn't sin like Adam. Adam did violate law. He was told, do not eat of that tree. And he self-consciously partook and therefore violated the clearly communicated law of God and because such, he fell, as you know. But even though they didn't do the same thing like Adam did, that is, men between Adam and Moses didn't sin according to a written law, they still sinned. How do I know that? They died. And why were they held accountable for sin? Because they sinned in Adam. Now, guys, let me just pause long enough. Do you see what the genius is doing? He's trying to give you an understanding, an understanding of what it means to be in Adam. So that later on, when he finally gets to it in verse 18, he can tell you what it means to be in Christ. He wants you to understand the consequences of being identified and in Adam. And then he's going to say later on, just like you are in Christ, you, you get all of the fruits of His completed work and all of the benefits. But that we have to save until later. But God is, in verse 14, is still dealing with sin as sin because you see death reigned. That's the evidence that God is still dealing with sin, even though the law is not written out yet. He's still dealing with sin as sin and condemning for it because the proof being, death reigned during that period, even though you didn't sin in the likeness, you didn't sin the way Adam did. Um, even though there was no law in words for you to violate, you still sinned. Death still reigned. And that's the proof that there was sin going on. Because sin is the penal punishment of, um, of, of sin. In Adam, they still sinned. Now, this last clause, ladies and gentlemen, is, is a gr great hint or insight as to what the Apostle Paul is doing. Because like you sinned in Adam who is a type of him who is to come. Do you understand? I, the, the Apostle Paul is trying to compare certain things that we know about Adam with the benefits of now being in Christ. 
this Adam is a type um, of, of him who is to come. And, and, and very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, that's the key to this portion of Romans 5. We are introduced to this critical comparison as Adam's one act of disobedience has constituted us all sinners. So, just so, even so, the obedience of Christ constitutes all who believe in Him as righteous. Adam's sin is imputed to us exactly the same way that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to make sure that you understand this one so that he can compare it with this one and say, oh, I see, because of what Adam did, I am now held accountable for what he did. And he was a type of the one who is to come. Oh, and because of the one who came... And what he has done, now I am considered righteous because I am in him. That's the, that's the focus of this, this section of Scripture, folks. Uh, on, on the one hand, we became sinners when Adam sinned. But on the other hand, those who are in Christ have all the benefits of his life and what he has done because they are in Christ. Um, there is an interesting portion where the two are also compared in 1 Corinthians 15. I'd love for you to take a look at it if you can find 1 Corinthians 15 real fast. In verses 45 through 49 of 1 Corinthians 15, um, I'm beginning at verse 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Do you see what, I mean, Paul is contrasting. And by the way, it's interesting. He says the first Adam and the last Adam. He doesn't say the second Adam. Because if he said second Adam, it might imply that there might be a third Adam. But the, the first Adam and the last Adam, I mean, the first Adam did this. The second Adam did that. There are similarities in these two. They are being contrasted and compared. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Do you see it? Paul wants you to understand that there are certain similarities between Adam, who he was, what he was like, that is that each one of them was the head of a race, each one of them was appointed by God, each one of them had a covenant made with him, um, and, and therefore is a covenant head. Each one of them represented all his seed, and each one has passed onto his seed the effects and fruits of his work. So if you understand that through one man sin entered and death spread to all men, then it ought to give you a leg up on understanding that through Christ all of his righteousness gets passed on to me as well. You know, um, just, just kind of a casual observation. I'll tell you a story and I'll finish. But it's interesting to me 
that you and I as, as believers are more comfortable with the idea that Adam's sin was passed on to us than we are that Christ's righteousness was passed on to us. It is not hard for us to admit that we're sinners. Um, we know it by experience, but I mean, we, we, find that, we find that pretty easy to say, that yes, sir, I, you know, um, in the fall I sin. But then we come to this place where we're talking about righteousness and that Christ's work becomes mine and that I am right. That's so much more difficult for us. We understand that indeed Christ's righteousness goes to people. We just struggle with, has it gone to me? But Adam's sin, we, we don't have a problem saying that. And, and, and just a further observation, it's interesting at least to me, I'm not sure I'm right about this, but it's interesting that when we talk about Adam's, us being held accountable for Adam's sin, we say, that's not fair. That's not fair. But when we come to talk about us getting credit for Christ's righteousness, nobody ever says that. Nobody ever says it's not fair that I get Christ's righteousness. But now, get this. The thing that we call not fair is the thing that we're most comfortable with. And the thing that we identify as fair, we find hard to believe. Isn't that an insight to the complexity of the human heart and mind? That's not fair, but oh yeah, I'm a sinner. But that is fair. That I get Christ's right. But, but I struggle to enjoy that. There is a sense that I enjoy, in the most negative sense of the term, I enjoy the fact that my, I am identified as a sinner with Adam. But I don't enjoy that I'm identified as righteous in Christ. The thing that we think is so glorious, we're not comfortable with. But the thing that we think is, uh, you know, got some unfairness in it, we're comfortable with. I don't know why that is. I, I, I think in, a, in our heart of hearts, we know that we created the mess, that is, via our sin. And so what we want now is to get ourselves out of the mess. And so to come to Christ to get us out of the mess is not something we're comfortable with. We're comfortable with saying, okay, I, I made the mess. But you watch this. I'm going to get myself out of this mess. I, I close with this story in, because I, I love the little story. I think I've told it before in here, but to guys, um, I think the Apostle Paul would, would like this story too because I think that's, it's his design in Romans 5 is to, is to compare and contrast these people, Adam and Christ, so that we can understand that his righteousness is mine. Just like Adam's sin is mine, his righteousness is mine. When our kids were little... Um, you know, we used to have talking time at night, and, and um, before they, they got older, I would go in, you know, bedroom to bedroom uh, and um, have some kind of talking time, read some kind of book, and do something. But one of the books that we read um, a lot, because we had three girls, was a book entitled Small Pig. And by the way, if you've heard me tell this story before, I, you just have to, you're going to have to get used to this because uh, my good buddy R.C. Sproul said that, that he could never be a pastor because after seven years, he would begin to repeat himself. Well, I've been here 11 years. So if you've only heard this story twice, it's, it's right on target. Um, <laughs> you've got some real boring days in front of you because, uh, you know, the, the next, then I've got to repeat him again, that, but that. But, but anyway, um, 
this book about small pig, and small pig lived on a farm, and, and uh, there was a little boy on the farm, and, and his favorite farm animal was small pig. But Mrs. Farmer Brown, or whatever her name is, decided that the, the farm was a wreck and she needed to clean it up. And so she got on this rampage of cleaning up the, the, the house and making it as spotless and as tidy as she possibly could. And, um, um, and after she got through with the house, she decided, well, look outside. The place is a wreck out there. And so she began to clean up on the outside. And the one thing that she cleaned up, uh, I mean, the, the last thing that she cleaned up that was the most consequential was she thought that the pigsty where the pig used to sit down and sink down into the nice soft mud. That was the, that was the chorus of the book. Small pig liked to sit down and sink down into the nice soft mud. But Mrs. Farmer Brown decided it was, a, it was an eyesore and that it needed to be cleaned up. And so she takes her vacuum cleaner out there, shop vac, no doubt, and, and cleans up the, the, the pigsty. And so Small Pig is left without any place to sit down and sink down into the nice soft mud. And so he's had enough. And so he runs off and heads to the city. And he's walking up down one of the major thoroughfares there in the big city, and, and he discovers something that he thinks is resembles his pigsty. And so uh, he, he, he walks up and jumps into it, and indeed it is nice and soft and mushy, not realizing that he has jumped into freshly poured concrete. But he sits down and sinks down into the nice soft mud, only to discover in, in a matter of minutes that he is hopelessly stuck and so Farmer Brown and the little boy are just panicky because they can't find Small Pig. And so they head to the city to try to look for Small Pig, and they notice this huge gathering of people and discover that there's their Small Pig stuck in the concrete. And what are we going to do now? And you can just see in those little girls' eyes and mine, just, how are we going to get Small Pig? And then, of course, the firemen come, and they have the jackhammer, and they jackhammer. Uh, it ends, it ends uh, positively, everyone. Uh, relax. Uh, and they jackhammer small pig out and clean him all up and send him back home to the farm. And, the, and Mother Father, uh, Farmer Brown uh, says, I'll never do that again. I'll always allow the pigsty to be there. Well, here's my point, ladies and gentlemen. This is what I think the Apostle Paul would love to hear. I think his goal in this section of the book of Romans is to encourage the people of God to sit down and sink down into the righteousness made available to us through Jesus Christ to become comfortable in all of the fruits and the benefits of His work that are now ours. To just take it one step further, I, I would think that it would almost be okay to say it's all right to get stuck there. Because I'm telling you, the average people of God, the average person of God, has more trouble enjoying the fruits of Christ's labor for us than they do the fruits of Adam's labor on our behalf. And that's what Paul is trying to correct this passage. Let's quit. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. Uh, I pray that it will be ably handled behind this pulpit and every other pulpit in this church. And um, the teachers of this church are not infallible. Uh, they are um, 
They are men of dust. And I pray that you will give them the power of your spirit to rightly handle and, and competently communicate um, what it says and how it can be such a glory to our souls. Father, um, if error has been spoken here tonight, I pray that you will correct it and that nothing will be remembered. But if what has been spoken has been true to the intent and the, um, uh, and the purpose of the apostle, might your people find joy in knowing that um, this one Adam was a type of the one who was to come and the uh, deleterious effects that have been ours because of his work have been corrected because of another one whose work was completed with the word to tell us die. All done, all paid for. Now, sit down, sink down into the nice, soft environment of Christ's righteousness. Might we be a people who enjoy the great benefits and fruits of his work. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night.